0: Well, good morning. Uh, This morning, before we turn to the Word of God, I want to take a moment and just ask us to pray. You know, this week uh, in Kamloops, at one of the residential schools there, there was the discovery of uh, the buried bodies of 215 Indigenous children. And for us as a nation, it was shocking and and disturbing and and just deeply troubling. And so I think that it's good for us as a congregation uh, to take a moment before we get into God's Word this morning and to pray and to ask uh, God uh, for His care and His comfort. The the Scriptures teach us that we are to mourn with those who mourn, and that's what we want to do this morning. So I want to invite you. Would you join me? and Let's pray uh, certainly for us as a nation, but also for the indigenous people and in particular for those Uh, people who are directly affected by by this news, who are tied to somebody uh, who uh, was in that place. So would you bow your head? Let's pray. Well, God, this morning we bow our heads and we come to you. And God, we grieve for what took place in that school. God, it was wrong and it was wicked. It's hard to fathom that something like that could take place in this nation. Yet, God, clearly it did. And Lord, we pray that you would comfort all of us as we mourn. And God, we pray for the indigenous people and ask for your comfort and care for them in these days. And God, especially for those who are personally connected to the, to the children who died at that school. God, we pray for justice and for healing and for reconciliation in our land. And Lord, we pray that you would guide our own hearts as we take in this news, as we seek to follow Jesus in this country, in this day. God, may we be faithful to how you call us to live and to love in this world. And God, we ask for your grace and your peace to be upon all of us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right, well, let's, uh, let's turn to the Word of God for today. I want to begin by asking you this. Is there somebody in your world that you would say, this is my favorite teacher or author or Christian leader? Uh, if, if I were to ask you that, who would you, who would you answer? You know, for most people, certainly for me, there'd be two or three or five or six different people that you would list. You say, these are the, these are the people that I follow. These are the people I buy their books. I listen to their podcasts. Maybe I give to their ministry. I, if I get a chance, you know, I, I go hear them at a conference and, and, and we listen to them. We follow them because we, we like them. We like their style. We like the things that they, they talk about the topics and hopefully, hopefully one of the main reasons we like them is because they teach the word of God with, with passion and conviction and clarity and truth. Uh, or, or they lead their organization with wisdom and integrity and, and in the mission that God has given them. And, 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 and because of who they are, and what they do, we honor them. Uh, and and we should, you know, uh, too often we fail to honor the leaders in the in our world, certainly in the church. And we need to honor those people who give such gracious and gifted leadership to the church. As long as we're careful not to drift into the whole area of sort of celebrity worship or the celebrity culture, but rather honor them for what they're doing for Christ. You know, in the world of the early church, uh, th- at least in the Gentile world, there would have been no leader more revered, more honored than the Apostle Paul. Everywhere that he went, everyone wanted to see him, wanted to be around him. Certainly uh, when, he, when he rolled into Rome, I mean, even in chains, he had a profound effect on the local church. They, there was this new invigorated uh, desire to share the gospel, even though some uh, ended up sharing the gospel out of a sense of rivalry with the Apostle Paul. We saw that at the beginning of this letter that he wrote. And, and so Paul was highly honored as a leader in the early church. But Paul was under no, uh, no illusion that the gospel goes forward just because of great and strong leaders like himself. In fact, he knows that the gospel goes forward because of the, the, the lives and the service of everyday regular Christians, uh, both in Philippi and in Rome and around the world. And so in the in the letter that he's going to write, uh, that we're studying here, he comes now to a passage where he talks about two of those kind of regular everyday Christians. One is a guy named Timothy, and the other guy is a guy named Epaphroditus. And so if you've got your Bibles, I want to invite you to turn back to Philippians chapter 2, beginning in verse 19. Paul is going to tell them, you know, how these guys are going to be involved in their life. And as he does, he's also going to describe what they're like. Here's what he writes. Philippians chapter 2, beginning in verse 19. I have thought it necessary to send to you Epaphroditus, my brother and fellow worker and fellow soldier and your messenger and minister to my need. For he has been longing for you all and has been distressed because you heard that he was ill. Indeed, he was ill, near to death. But God has, God had mercy on him and not only on him, but on me also, lest I should have sorrow upon sorrow. I am the more eager to send him, therefore, that you may rejoice at seeing him again and that I may be less anxious. So receive him in the Lord with all joy and honor such men, for he nearly died for the work of Christ, risking his life to complete what was lacking in your service to me. So Paul begins by explaining now to the church in Philippi that he's going to send two men to to visit them. The first he uh, talks about is Timothy. He says he's going to send Timothy because he wants Timothy to bring back to him a report of all the good things that are happening in that church. He says, I'm not going to send Timothy right away until I kind of figure out what's happening for me here in Rome. But the second guy that he's going to send them is Epaphroditus. And he's going to send Epaphroditus back right away because he wants him to get back there. And, and probably he's going to deliver this very letter through Epaphroditus. But as he does this, he, he gives an explanation about the the character of these two men and, and why it is that he is going to send these two men back to him. And, and so we want to look at what he says about these two Christian men and, uh, and, and particularly what he says at the end about them and, and then how that affects us in our lives. So he starts with Timothy. This is what he says in, in chapter 2, verse 19. He says, I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon, so I may be cheered by news of you. Now, we know a little bit about Timothy because his name comes up in a number of places throughout the New Testament, as well as there's two letters that the Apostle Paul personally wrote to Timothy. And and what we know about Timothy, uh, there's a number of things. We know, first of all, that he was uh, he was the son of a Jewish woman and a Greek man. Uh, we've learned about this in Acts chapter 16, and though it'd be no big deal today, it's not no big deal. In that day, the fact that he had a mixed ethnic background would have caused him problems. It would have been an issue and a challenge for him, no matter where he went in the world around him, but happened to be the background that he had. Uh, we also learned that his father wasn't a spiritual leader. It was his mother and his grandmother who really poured into his life and who did a fantastic job of raising him to follow Jesus. But it must have been hard, both for them and certainly for Timothy, that his father was not involved in his spiritual world at all. We also know that Timothy had health issues. In fact, at one point in his letter to Timothy, the Apostle Paul says to Timothy, hey, don't just drink water. It's time for you to start drinking some wine, he says, for the sake of your stomach. And then he says, and also because of your many ailments. In other words, Timothy was a guy who had some sort of ongoing health issues in his life. We also know that Timothy was young for the role that God was calling him to. At least, and especially in that culture, he was, he was particularly young. Paul, at one point, writes to him and he says, look, don't let anyone look down on you for your youth, but rather set an example for them in, in how you live your life and how you love people and how you live your faith and certainly by living in purity. And so we know he was, he was a young guy. And then finally, we know this. That, that Timothy was Paul's protege, but he was no Paul. I mean, he didn't have the charisma. He didn't have the, the skill set. He didn't have the calling that Paul had. And that's okay. It, it, it's okay. It was simply who he was. It turns out that Timothy is just this regular guy, this guy who loved Jesus, who'd been transformed by the power of Jesus in his life and that, and that was following after Jesus. But now Paul is going to give us the reasons why he's going to send Timothy. He says this in verse 20 and 21. He says, I'm going to send him. He says, for I have no one like him who will be genuinely concerned for your welfare. They all seek their own interests, not those of Christ Jesus. Paul says, I'm going to send Timothy to you. Uh, first of all, he says, because I have no one like him. In Greek, literally, that line is, I have no one equal in soul. In other, words, in other words, what the Apostle Paul is saying is that even though Timothy was very different than him, even though he was different gifting, different calling, different temperament, different personality, the fact of the matter is he had the same passion, the same love, the same desire to see the gospel of Jesus go forward. And he guided everything that he did. And this is the first thing that we note about, about Timothy. He had clarity of purpose. Timothy knew who he was. And he knew that he wasn't Paul. He wasn't called to be an apostle. He wasn't called to be a great teacher. He wasn't called to be the leader of the of the Gentile church. But the giftings and the talents and the abilities that Jesus had given him, he wanted to use those for the sake of the gospel, wherever he found himself. And so really, if you read through the New Testament, wherever there's a reference to Timothy, you see him using his skills and his abilities for the glory of God. Whether it's to visit the church in Philippi and check on how they're doing, or uh, to solve some issues, to deal with a mess that's happening in the church in Ephesus, or whether it's to bring some books to the apostle Paul when he's in jail, wherever it is, Timothy knows this is who I am. This is who God made me to be. And therefore I'm going to live in it. And the fact that he had that kind of clarity of purpose also meant that he didn't get caught up in this sort of consumer mentality. It wasn't sort of this idea that somehow this is just all about me and taking care of my needs. And what does the church do for me? In fact, Paul says, all the others seek their own interests and not that of Jesus Christ, which is fascinating. You know, uh, Reggie Campbell, he's a Christian uh, businessman, and he, he mentors guys. He collects a group of eight or nine guys. He invites them over to his place, and he, uh, he meets with them for the course of a year uh, to mentor them to follow Jesus before everything begins, uh, he says to each of the guys, he says, I want you to write a, a short bio of your life, who you are, your family, all that kind of stuff. And I want you to send it to one another and make sure you read it before we come. And then on the day when they first arrive, he gathers them all around and he's taken sort of the news about uh, some information about each of them. And he's put together about a hundred question, fill in the blank test. And he just passes it out to each of the guys and says, Hey, before we begin, could you fill this out? And they're questions about each other's wives and families and work and, you know, all of that kind of stuff. And he says, when they turn in their test, at the end of that, they're sheepish because their score is abysmal. Out of a hundred questions, the top guys get 17, maybe 18 questions right. He says, why? Why would that be? He says, the answers, they're so self-focused. They, they, they just focused on their own deal and what they're doing and not really what everyone else is is doing. Why would they read about all these other guys? And then he says to them, look, if tonight you were coming to meet with, you know, a a meeting with a big potential customer who could help you meet your sales quota for the year, or if you're meeting with a, a group of corporate executives that would help you with your career, do you think you would have spent the time to figure out, to know about them, to have the answers? Of course you would have. Why? Because you're looking out for yourself. But when it's a group of guys that you're going to walk together in community with for the next year, you don't take the time. I mean, this is this is a problem. Paul says Paul says this to seek the interests of others is to seek the interest of Jesus Christ. He says this is the characteristic of Timothy. He, he genuinely cares for people. It's so important. Dietrich Bonhoeffer talks about this uh, very thing. Here's here's what he says. He says, we must be ready to allow ourselves to be interrupted by God. God will constantly be crossing our paths and canceling our plans by sending us people with claims and petitions. We may pass them by preoccupied with our more important tasks as the priest passed by the man who had fallen among thieves, perhaps reading the Bible. It's a strange fact that Christians frequently consider their work so important and urgent that they will allow nothing to disturb them. They think they're doing a God of service in this, but actually they are disdaining God's crooked yet straight path. They do not want a life that is crossed and bulked, but it is a part of the discipline of humility that we must not spare our hand where it can perform a service. And that we do not assume that our schedule is our own to manage, but allow it to be arranged by God. You know, to genuinely care for people, even when it's not always convenient, even when it it causes us to have to change our schedules and what we're doing, that is to attend to the interests of Christ. And if you've ever been genuinely cared for, if someone has ever helped you when you're deep time of need, you know how powerful and beautiful that is in your life. It's more powerful than any sermon that you've ever heard. And that's the ministry of Christ in your life. And, And Paul says, that's who Timothy is. That's what Timothy does. And then he goes on to say, Here's two more attributes of him. Verse 22, he says, but you know Timothy's proven worth. How as a son with a father, he has served with me in the gospel. The first characteristic that he reads, that he lists here is Timothy's proven worth. Uh, That expression is a Greek word that is coined or comes out of an expression meaning put to the test. In other words, what he's saying is, here's what you know about Timothy, that we have watched him over time, and we have watched as he has faced not one test or two, but numerous numerous tests in his life over the years. And we have found that he is faithful to follow Jesus in those things. Not perfect, but faithful. And what Paul is talking about here is this. he's saying that Timothy has real integrity. The, the man is a man that you can trust. There's something about a follower of Jesus who follows for a long time in the same direction. And who faced tests and trials and temptations along the way and is faithful to Christ. You know, you can trust that kind of a person. And that's who Timothy is. And then, and then secondly, he describes Timothy as this. He says, as a son with a father, he has served with me in the gospel. And what he's talking about there is mentoring. You know, in that day, a son learned the profession of his father as his father mentored him, as he taught him along the way. And he says, this is what Paul is doing. For Timothy. He is mentoring him. He is teaching him how to follow Jesus more deeply. And in fact, this is the third or fourth actually characteristic that we see in Timothy's life. And that's this. Timothy is committed to ongoing learning. He's committed to continuing to grow spiritually. He didn't just sort of get the basics, say the prayer, and then put his faith on autopilot in the background and get on with his life. Instead, he said, I want to keep learning. I want to keep growing. And I want to learn from somebody who is further down the road than me. And Timothy, Timothy was a learner. He was a follower. And this is this is who Paul values so very deeply in his life. And this is who he wants to send to the church in Philippi. N- not a man who preaches to thousands and leads a great organization, but rather a man who has this deep clarity of purpose and who genuinely cares for them and, and who has this incredible integrity and who is committed to growing deeper in his walk with Jesus. It's the first guy that that Paul talks about here. But then there's a second guy, and his name is Epaphroditus. Now, you have to understand his story. When the, when the church in Philippi heard that the Apostle Paul was in prison in Rome, they took up a collection. They, they gathered some money for him. And here's why. Because in, in, in that day, if you were put in prison, they just put you in prison. They didn't supply you food or clothing or a pillow to put your head on or anything like that. So if you had no one to come and bring that to you, you'd literally starve to death in prison because they weren't about to do that for you. So the church in Philippi heard about Paul and they gathered all of this money. And then they said, who are we going to get to to take it to to Paul in Rome? And the answer was Epaphroditus. Epaphroditus, just a member of their church, he volunteers to travel 1,300 miles from Philippi to Rome to deliver this money and to care for the Apostle Paul. At the end of his letter, the Apostle Paul writes this. He says, I am well supplied, having received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent me. So they'd sent him these gifts. But somewhere along the way, on that 1,300-kilometer trip, Epaphroditus got sick, like really sick, like to the point of death, sick. And you have to remember that in those days, you didn't just like turn off the road to the local, you know, walk-in clinic or emergency room. In that day, to the point of death was like one step, and then the next step was death. But the Apostle Paul says, by the mercy of God in Epaphroditus' life, he did not die. And and so he he's healed. But the the deal is that he made it to Rome. He came to Rome to minister to Paul, but news of his illness got back to the people in Philippi. But news of his healing hasn't yet, which means that they're back in Philippi, worried sick about what happened to Epaphroditus. So now both Epaphroditus and Paul want to see Epaphroditus get back there so that he can put their mind at ease. So that's what he's going to do. He's going to send them back. But As he sends Epaphroditus, the Apostle Paul again lists the the character, the attributes of this guy who volunteered to bring him this gift. Here's what he writes. In verse 25, he says this, I have thought it necessary to send to you, Epaphroditus, my brother and fellow worker and fellow soldier and your messenger and minister to my need. Five words that he uses there to describe Epaphroditus. First of all, brother. In these days, everyone calls everyone brother hey, brother, and they haven't even met him before. It was great. No problem. But you have to understand that in that day, there was no greater bond between two people than being brother and sister. You know, just those siblings. And Paul says that Epaphroditus was a brother in Christ. The relationship between them wasn't just transactional. You know, Epaphroditus didn't just show up and hand him the bag of money, and Paul shook his hand, and they put their arms around each other and took a picture, and, and off he went. That's not what happened. Rather... The Epaphroditus came and he poured his life and his heart into the Apostle Paul and vice versa, and they became brothers in Christ. And see, here's what, what uh, the Epaphroditus has. He has genuine relationships. You know, there are a few things as powerful and as deep as genuine relationships between two people no, that are not based on common blood from, from shared parents, but based on the shed blood of Jesus on the cross fact of what Jesus had done in, in each of their lives led them to this deep bond between one another. And so they walked together as brothers. Paul says, this is my brother in Christ. Secondly, he says that Epaphroditus was someone who is faithful and obedient. And we know that because he uses two words to describe him next. First of all, he calls him a fellow worker. You know, there is a work that is involved in seeing the gospel go forward. It doesn't sort of magically happen. It's not like a church just sort of sets down in a place and, and suddenly it just sort of magically happens that people start coming to faith in Jesus. There's toil and struggle and sweat and and setbacks sometimes and work to be done. And Epaphroditus shows up and he rolls up his sleeves and he goes to work. And Paul says, here's a man who is faithful to the call of God on his life. But then secondly, he calls him a fellow soldier. You know, you have to understand, I mean, we know this, that he and 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 Paul were fellow soldiers under the command of Jesus. And soldiers don't go by suggestions, they go by commands. And so a commanding officer comes to soldiers and says, I want you guys to go and I want you to hold Hill 52. Hold it until the reinforcements come. When the commanding officer says that to soldiers, they don't put up their hand and say, ah, actually, can I serve in the kitchen instead because it's safer to peel potatoes than to hold Hill 52 doesn't work that way. Instead, they go and they hold Hill 52 until reinforcements come or else they die trying to hold it because they understand that they're part of something greater than just themselves and that their commanding officer has a a broader picture in, in view of what it is that is ultimately going to be accomplished. And so Paul says that Epaphroditus was a fellow soldier. Not only was he faithful, but he was obedient to what Christ called him to do, even as it cost him. And then he goes on, he uses these two terms. He says that Epaphroditus was your messenger and minister to my need. Now, the words that he used there, are fascinating. The word messenger is literally the word apostle. It's the same Greek word. In other words, he says, Epaphroditus was your apostle to me. Now, he doesn't mean apostle in the same sense that he or the other 11 disciples that saw the risen Christ are apostles. But What he means is Epaphroditus was your messenger of good news, your messenger of hope. Because what Epaphroditus brought him was a message that we're praying for you in Philippi. We're behind you, we're supporting you, we're with you. It was his message of hope in his life. And then he also says, your minister. And that that word is a word that speaks of a priestly duty. In other words, Epaphroditus was the hands and feet of Jesus, that it came to him through them to serve his physical, practical needs. In other words, Epaphroditus was a messenger to him of both. Hope and help. And sometimes, I mean, in your world, certainly in my world, when, when there's chaos, when you're fearful or panicky or feeling anxious and stressed, God sends into your life somebody like that. You know, typically for me, it's not, it's not the famous guy that I'm listening to out of the States or the guy that I'm reading that's written a brilliant book, although I always appreciate their insights and their word. But for me, it's often, just a regular guy, guy that nobody else knows but comes into my life and cares for me and listens to me and points me to Jesus and serves me at my time of need. And you know, that person, that regular person becomes in my life the apostle and the, and the minister to my needs, the apostle and the priest. And it's more powerful again than so many other things. And it just happens when regular followers of Jesus serve one another. That's the kind of person that Epaphroditus was. In fact, uh, and, and he did that kind of thing all the time. And then there's one more descriptor that the Apostle Paul gives for Epaphroditus, and that says he was courageous. Look at verse 30. Paul writes this, For he nearly died for the work of Christ, risking his life to complete what was lacking in your service for me. Epaphroditus took a great risk to serve the Apostle Paul. I mean, he traveled 1,300 kilometers on foot with a big bag of money through uh, to, a, to a city that he didn't know through countryside that probably wasn't always the safest to deliver it to a political prisoner under Nero in Rome itself. I mean, the man took a serious risk for the sake of the gospel. and And he's just a regular guy. And yet he had this courage in his life. There's this fascinating story out of the history of the early church that arose out of Epaphroditus' life. Uh, The story takes place in the year 252 in the city of Carthage in North Africa, a major city in the Roman Empire. Uh, In 252, the plague came to, to Carthage. And of course, in that day, they didn't have the kind of medical resources that we had. And so people were dying all over the place. And the city officials ordered that every corpse be carried out of the city, but they also forced anyone who might have possibly come in contact with the plague out of the city, which meant that there were all sorts of people who were outside with no resources outside the city, suffering and dying from the plague. And the bishop of, of the Church of Carthage, a man named Cyprian, called together the church. And he said to the, to the members of the church, he said, there are all those people out there dying and alone. Who is it that is going to leave the comfort and the safety of their home?" Who is it that God is calling to risk their very lives for the sake of the gospel and go and minister to those people? And there was a whole group of people who did that very thing, uh, who left the city and went out and risked their lives, some of them dying, to care for these very people. And and what began in that day in Carthage was a movement that was called the Parabolani. Uh, Literally, it was based on this Greek word that the Apostle Paul uses here. It meant a group of people who were risking their lives for the sake of the gospel. And it was a movement that began in Carthage in the year 252 and went on for several hundred years in the life of the church. And over those several hundred years, hundreds and thousands of regular everyday Christians, many, all of whose names we will never know, except for the people who knew them themselves. Jesus will never know their names. They risked their lives for the sake of the gospel of Jesus Christ. This was Epaphroditus courageous, a messenger of hope and help, faithful and obedient, a man who built genuine, deep relationships with the people around him. But he wasn't a pastor, a teacher, a famous leader. There's no podcast, no conferences, no articles in Christianity today. He was just a regular guy who loved Jesus in his everyday life. And this is what Paul says about him. Verse 29. So receive him in the Lord with all joy and honor such man. Receive him with all joy and honor such men. You know, the call on us is to honor men and women like this. We we obviously should honor those who are leaders in the church, those who are incredibly gifted to preach and teach and lead. Uh, Absolutely. But let's be careful that we don't put them on a pedestal and forget to honor the amazing, incredible, everyday servants of Jesus in our midst who, who don't have that kind of platform. People like Timothy and Epaphroditus. And our church is filled with people like that. And I know it because I've met so many of you and in totally unassuming, in the most humble of ways, you are living and faithfully following Jesus. You know, a while back, I said to one of the guys in our church, I said, hey, let's let's meet uh, for coffee. I want to catch up and see what's happening in your world. Can we meet at 10 in the morning? He said, ah, do you mind if we meet at 1030? I said, oh, no problem. Why? He said, I, because before that, I'm taking a servant and teaching him how to drive. Now, if you were here last week, you would have met Servan. Servan and Lilith are the refugee couple that we, our church has, has sponsored and we have cared for this past year as they've come to Canada. And this guy was helping him learn to drive. Now, I don't know if you've ever helped someone learn to drive, maybe one of your kids. It's terrifying. I mean, it takes courage to do that. And it's one thing to do it for your kid. It's another thing to do it for somebody that, that isn't your kid. And, and yet that's that's what, what this guy was doing. He was taking his time and, and teaching how to how to drive. And in fact, just this week, I met another lady in our church who is teaching Leelof how to drive. And in fact, there is this entire group of people in our church that have so quietly and so humbly served that family in such beautiful ways because of what Jesus has done in their own lives. And it's their way of loving and sharing and caring for them. And I know of others you, who you just know you're gifting. You know how God has created you and wherever you go, wherever you find yourself, you are serving in Jesus' name. And I just know it because everywhere I go, when I bump into you, there you are doing whatever God has given you to do for the sake of the gospel. It's so encouraging. And you know, I have spoken to a number of husbands uh, at this church who have, who have sacrificed in in some cases, long-term for their wives and for their children, for their families, in, in, the, in all kinds of ways, the kinds of sacrifices that most men would never dream of making. And they've done it without fanfare and with such deep humility in their lives, in some cases, in ways that only God himself will ever see and ever know of. And it's unbelievable what they have done for their wives. And I am absolutely positive that there are wives who have done the same for their husbands and for their children faithfully following Jesus in all kinds of ways. And I know others of you who have walked through some deep waters around here at the church. I mean, over the last number of years, when things have been difficult and hard, you just faithfully followed Jesus, faithfully continued to serve him. And you've done and been so committed to the mission and the ministry of our church, and you've done it with such deep integrity through it all. And I spoke again not long ago with a guy who, who, along with his wife, were caring for another family in our church. Uh, as they too walk through really difficult times. And, and and though it costs this man and his wife a lot of energy and time and sometimes frustration, they do it out of their their love for that family because they have such a deep relationship with them, but also because of their love for Christ. And and it's a beautiful thing. And I could go on and list all kinds of other examples. I mean, you've been seeing, if you've been watching our pre-service, uh, the example of some of the, the the legacy stories we've been telling people who have been here so many years and many others, all so humbly and never wanting their stories never sort of told publicly, and yet faithfully serving Jesus in all kinds of amazing, beautiful ways. None famous. None, none who will ever, you know, be known outside of us and the people in their world and Jesus. Apostle Paul says this about them. We should honor men and women like that. We should receive them with, what, with such joy. You know, the the church needs its upfront leaders. We need to honor them. But as it goes forward, the most profound effect, the the most beautiful work of the gospel of Jesus Christ happens through the lives of all kinds of regular, everyday, amazing, incredible Christians who live their lives in a a manner worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And they're doing it not for recognition, not for fame, but rather simply out of their love for Jesus and what he has done for them. In fact, everything that we do really is because of Jesus and for Jesus and through Jesus. And so today I want to end our time together by celebrating communion, by remembering that it's because of Jesus' death and resurrection that we have the life that we have. And in particular today in our communion, we want to remember his death and and the price that he paid and the covenant that he made on the cross with us. And so I want to invite you at, at this point to to take the bread that you have there or whatever the element is that you have the bread and and to to take it in your hand. And and the place that we want to start as we share communion again is by examining our own heart, by remembering again that we have sinned against God, that it is only by what Jesus did on the cross that we are right before him and by confessing our sins and making sure that we're right before God. And so I just want to invite you to take some time right now to do that very thing, to confess your sins, quiet your heart, to thank God for what he's done in your life. And then we'll, we'll eat the bread together. So let me give you a moment. The Bible says that on the night that Jesus was betrayed, he took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Let's eat it together. And then the cup. Bible says this, after supper, Jesus took the cup and he said, this cup is the new covenant that is in my blood. Drink this whenever you do in remembrance of me. Let's drink this cup together. Now let's pray. For God, today, again, we are reminded of the incredible sacrifice that Jesus made on the cross in our place. God, we confess again that we are sinners, that we're broken, that we're far from perfect, but that we serve a perfect God, such a good God who would send his own son to suffer and to die, that we might have life, that we might know life through him. And Father, even as we listen today to your words about Timothy and Epaphroditus, about their character and their commitment to you, God, our heart too is that in our everyday regular lives, that we would live before you in a way that honors you, in a way that is worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Not perfect, God, none of us are perfect, but Father, as we strive to live in a way that you would be glorified in our lives, that you would be lifted high. God, that you uh, would take pleasure in what we do. And so God, we, we thank you for Jesus. We thank you for the life we have in him. And God, we ask that you would lead us as we continue to follow you. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.